Good morning and welcome to the Calvary Chapel Sydney live stream. It's a blessing to be with you, to read God's word, just to celebrate his goodness and what a glorious God who would love us and come to be our savior. Um, wow, it's just, it's amazing to think how, how marvelous and majestic God is in his power and that he would humble himself to become a man, to come as the son of God, the king of glory um, walking amongst us. We've beheld his glory by his grace and praise the Lord for his goodness to all. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness. Thank you for your word. Thank you that you are an awesome God. We, we relish the opportunity to read your word, to draw near to you, to hear your voice, to praise and to worship you together. And we pray, Lord, that you would strengthen us, that you would give us ears to hear, that you would fill us with your spirit, that you'd be glorified and pleased in this time of the teaching of your word, the worshiping of you through the word, and uh, may you be honored and glorified forever. In Jesus' name, amen. Are you someone who asks a lot of questions? Now, the questions you ask, it says something about you. A questioning mind, it could be motivated by curiosity, maybe to test someone, uh, showing your skepticism, or perhaps a search for truth, or to sow doubt. So there's a lot of motives behind the questions that we ask. And sometimes we have this burning question and we think, if, if I could only have this question answered, I would be content. Now, that's not always true. It's kind of like if you asked, why am I feeling so sick? And the doctor says, because you have a terminal illness, that's not a comforting answer, is it? And it's a good question. It's a good practice when you're asked a question to really deal with the questioner rather than just answering the question. Because many times, uh, questions can be hypothetical, personal questions in disguise. And I love the way that Jesus deals with the heart of questioners who came to him. He always knew what they were thinking, and he redirected the question to expose the need of that person for his wisdom and guidance. And I'm convinced that a lot of the questions that we ask, a lot of the questions that... Um, we ponder and muse over, they can often be the wrong questions in light of God's sovereignty and eternity. We'll be in Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 25. To bring us up to pace, Jesus has just sent out 70 disciples to prepare for his visit on the way to Jerusalem, and they returned rejoicing. They had uh, been accepted by some cities and townsfolk, but they had been rejected by others. But they rejoiced. Hey, the, the spirits are subject to us. And Jesus affirmed he saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And they were exhorted not to rejoice in their power over the spirits, but that their names were written in heaven, written in the Lamb's book of life. And he pulled them aside and he said, Blessed are your eyes that see these things, because there's been prophets and kings who desired to know these things, but they remained hidden from them. But you see them, and you have received them. Um, and how blessed we are to have God's Word, to have the Holy Spirit, to have these revelations, to be able to seek God in prayer continually. We don't have to go to a temple, um, like a, a particular geographical location to worship God, like a church building. Hey, I'm looking forward to when we can worship together in a church building, but 
Jesus is able to teach us. And every lesson he teaches us, it's awesome and good because he's good. So we'll be in Luke 10, 25. It reads, And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? What is your reading of it? So he answered and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered rightly. Do this, and you will live. A lawyer stood up to test or to thoroughly examine Jesus. He was an expert of the Mosaic law. And it makes sense that you would test a, you would have a driving, you would actually test out a car that you're planning on driving or buying. You would test the stability of a chair before putting all of your weight on it. If it's rickety, like a, a ladder or something, you'd want to say, does this feel stable before I put all my weight on it? And a disciple ought to consider well the claims of the master that he learns from and chooses to follow. And a tree, we read, is known by its fruit. A person or a teacher is known by their words and their deeds. And by that, we can know if they're um, walking in truth according to God's word or not. Now, we don't know the heart of the man, but the question he asks is a very good one. It's very relevant. And he says, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And it's a tricky question because the law doesn't explicitly say, it doesn't speak really about eternal life or it doesn't provide any assurance of salvation. In John 5.39, Jesus pointed out how the Pharisees believed the secret to eternal life was in the scripture. He said, you search the scriptures for in them you think you have eternal life and these are they which testify of me. They were searching the scriptures because it wasn't just plainly stated. It wasn't uh, promised to anyone in particular. Um, like the gospel was veiled in that time. But through Jesus, it was revealed how we have eternal life through faith in him, the son of God. Now, Jesus, he knew the correct answer to this man's question. And the expert had his own answer too. And in, instead of immediately giving the answer... He asks, what is written in the law? What is your reading of it? It's kind of like Jesus saying, you're the expert, you tell me. The man replied, he quoted from Deuteronomy 6.5 and Leviticus 19.18. He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, correct, do this and you will live. Now, do you think this answer was comforting to the man? Where he's like, hey, now that I know that, I'm set, or I have assurance of salvation. My problems are over. No, see, the, the issue is the law is perfect. It's without flaw, and it demands absolute obedience in every aspect. We are incapable of keeping what the law says perfectly. Jesus didn't say, do your best to keep the law. He says, do this and live. It's conditional upon you perfectly doing what the law says. Who among us is without fault? Who can claim at all times we have truly loved God with all our heart, all our soul, all our strength, and all our mind? We really don't even know what that looks like, right? If you've always loved your neighbor as yourself, you've done better than me, but doing better than me isn't good enough. You have to be as good as God. You have to keep the law perfectly to live, to have eternal life, and to have assurance of salvation. The law is God's righteous, 
upright standard. It does not change based upon uh, who you are. It, it condemns us all as sinners. Verse 10, so Luke 10, verse 29, but he wanting to justify himself said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? The man's conscience was not eased by knowing what to do to have eternal life because he had fallen short and he did what's natural for all men. He wanted to justify himself. He was determined to show he was innocent of breaking the law and righteous before God. And it seems he made the assumption that he had always loved God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. And, and no one could prove otherwise because his relationship to God was measured by externals, like keeping the feasts, offering sacrifices, washing his hands in the prescribed manner, um, eating kosher food, being circumcised, uh, tithing of his increase, and the study of Scripture was his life. So according to the law, he would be seen as an upright man. And he asked Jesus, it says, with the desire to justify himself, saying, and who is my neighbor? Because if you could, he, he realized that if you were to give an ambiguous or narrow definition of what a neighbor is, he'd have a better chance of excusing himself from condemnation and judgment and guilt. Now, do you recognize in yourself the same tendency of this lawyer to justify yourself. Our way of justifying is very different than God's. We justify having an extra drink or a larger serving of ice cream because it's our birthday or we feel down. Or We justify ourselves based on arbitrary feelings or fairness, how we feel at the time. People could justify stealing tools from an employer after they've been made redundant and they haven't received pay for two weeks. They say, you know what? Hey, it's fair that I should get back at them because they haven't paid me so I can use some tools to offset my labors. Uh, we can justify doing something because other people have done it, like when I justified pranking a coworker because he pranked me first. So he pranked me, so I think, okay, it's fair to me re to respond in kind. I justified pranking him because he did it to me first. It's good when we realize that no man can justify himself before a righteous, holy God. He has this unchangeable, perfect standard. And we can say, I never killed anyone, but did you love them? Do you love them? See, the standard that God holds us to is greater than that of law. We look at the outward appearances. We try to escape on a technicality, but there are no loopholes for us. God, he sees our hearts. And following our own hearts does not justify us before God. He's the judge, right? All right, continuing in Luke 10, verse 30. Then Jesus answered and said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves, who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a certain priest came down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise a Levite, when he arrived at the place, came and looked, and passed by on the other side. Jesus answered the man's question with a parable, a story from ordinary life to bring forth spiritual truth. Now, parables should not be confused with allegory, where every aspect of the story has a spiritual equivalent, or it all is representative of something else. That would be spiritualizing the passage. 
in the parable, it's a story. This man is heading from Jerusalem to Jericho. It was a long and dangerous road. According to the historian Josephus, the road was about 29 kilometers long. In that distance, it went down about one kilometer. And the man, as he was traveling alone, fell among thieves. He was robbed, beaten up, left half dead. And it so happened that a priest was traveling along that road. He would be a descendant of Aaron, the high priest. And I assume that he'd be dressed like a priest. You would be able to look at him and tell that he was of that lineage. He saw the injured man, but he passed by on the other side. And we also see a Levite, one also who served in the ministry in the temple and in the tabernacle or in the, the synagogues. He sees the wounded man. He too passes by on the other side. We're not told why they ignored the man or his plight, but it wouldn't be hard to justify, right? If you see this man lying there and um, in a bad state, you think, well, I'm not prepared for this. I'm already late, or this is obviously not a safe place. If I tarry here, I'm going to be like that man. Um, I can't risk being unclean. He hasn't asked for help. Perhaps this is divine justice, and he's receiving what he deserved, and who am I to intervene? So it, it sounds familiar, right? We can make an excuse for why we shouldn't or why they didn't respond immediately to the man's predicament. Now, the priests and the Levite, they had the law that spoke of their responsibility to help their brethren when their animals wandered away. We read of this in Deuteronomy 22, 1 through 4, and you're welcome to turn there. It reads, you shall not see your brother's ox or his sheep going astray and hide yourself from them. You shall certainly bring them back to your neighbor, your brother. And if your brother is not near you or you do not know him, then you shall bring it to your own house and it shall remain with you until your brother seeks it. Then you shall restore it to him. You shall do the same with his donkey and so shall you do with his garment. With any lost thing of your brother's which he has lost and you have found, you shall do likewise. You must not hide yourself. You shall not see your brother's donkey or his ox fall down along the road and hide yourself from them. You shall surely help him lift them up again. So this passage speaks of a Jew to his fellow Jew. Because it says, if you do not know him. So you're not sure whose donkey this is that's gone astray. But you will wait until your brother, your fellow Jew, comes and you will restore it to him. You'll help him if he has a problem with these wayward animals. And so uh, it says, don't hide yourself, make sure you take care of it, and you help your brother. Several times it says, don't hide yourself from the need right in front of you. And what applied to animals, they should have applied to people as well. The priest and Levite both saw this fellow Jew in a terrible state, half dead by the side of the road, stripped of his clothes and valuables, and that's why they passed by on the other side. They saw him and they hid themselves from his pains. They just avoided him. Now, if the law held your brother's animals or possessions of such great esteem, then how much more should you value your brother when it's your brother who is hurting, when your brother is dying? People created in the image of God are of far greater importance, infinitely greater importance than animals or stuff. Continuing with Jesus' words in Luke 10, 33. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. 
So he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. On the next day when he departed, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said to him, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I come again, I will repay you. So which of these three do you think was neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? And he said, He who showed mercy on him. Then Jesus said to him, Go and do likewise. The priest passed by on the other side. The Levite passes by. And now we see this certain Samaritan who's also journeying along that road. Where the wounded man was, he saw him and he had compassion on him. Now this Samaritan, that was a Gentile group uh, generally hated by the Jews. And he went to him. He bandaged his wounds. He poured on oil. That would be soothing, like an ointment. And also wine for a cleansing antiseptic. He placed the man on his own animal, which meant that he had to walk the rest of the trip. And the kindness of the Samaritan continued. He wasn't just content to do these things. He brought him to an inn. He paid his way. It says he took care of him personally all that night. He made sure he was well-fed and comfortable. And the next day, he gave the innkeeper two denarii. That would be two days' wages. And a day's wage would pay for um, your food and your housing and, and all your bills. So it was a significant amount of money. And he, and he said, I promise to return to make sure everything's fine and I'll pay you anything else you need to make sure this man is restored to full health. Now the contrast between the Samaritan and the priest and Levite, it couldn't be more different, right? It's a huge contrast. The compassion, the love put in action of that Samaritan, it, it was at great personal cost. And it's an example of what God's love looks like. This reminds me of the compassion Jesus has shown us when we were dead in sins and trespasses. It's like law and religion. It, it provided no cure for our ills. We were all under condemnation with no hope of salvation in ourselves. Yet Jesus, he didn't hide himself from our need. He came to us. He became like us in that he put on human flesh. He embraced our pains, he himself suffering much grief, and he demonstrated by God, God's love by dying on the cross for our sins, by providing atonement to justify us according to his grace through faith. And he did much more than the Samaritan did because he even was able to take the blows that we deserved. Isaiah 50 verse 5 and 6 says of our Messiah, it says, the Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious, nor did I turn away. I gave my back to those who struck me, and my cheeks to those who plucked out the beard. I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. So Jesus did not hide himself from shame, from humiliation. He gave his body so that we might be justified by grace through faith. And when I read this, I think, am I somebody who hides? Am I someone who sees a need and ignore it? Or am I one who goes to where that person is, where they're at, out of compassion and out of the fear of the Lord and the love for others to selflessly give at my own cost to see them restored? After the parable, Jesus asked, which of these three do you think was neighbor to him who fell among thieves? The man had asked, and who is my neighbor? Jesus changed the premise of the question 
The more important point is, to whom are you a neighbor? The man's answer is telling of his view of the Samaritans because he couldn't even bring himself to say the word or admit that there was the potential of such compassion or kindness in a Samaritan because he hated them. He answered, he who showed mercy on him. Jesus then said, go and do likewise. The lawyer wasn't to restrict kindness or compassion to his brother or to his neighbor, the one who was in close proximity to him or someone who lived on his street. But he was to be neighborly to all, even Samaritans. And the only way that we can go and do likewise is with the love that God freely gives through Jesus Christ. When we receive that love and we're born again through faith in him. So this parable, it exposes our natural lack of love for God and others. It also is an exhortation to go and do like the Samaritan did. And Jesus has given us that example. Now, Jesus was not saying that the lawyer needed to establish, uh, needed to travel that road of Jericho to seek out people who were beaten up or in trouble or to establish a hospital or an inn where they would care for wounded travelers should they happen. But he was to deal with the need of the person that was right in front of him. We have this habit of bundling people into groups, right? You've got the blokes and the bikies or uh, tradies or the single moms, whites or blacks, uh, teens, refugees, rough sleepers. And theoretically, there may be this group that God's put on your heart that y- you want to minister to them all before you've even seen one in, in person that you want to, that you can help. And it may be that God would put a particular group that have needs on your heart. This is good. But our compassion ought not to be confined to them. It's this romantic notion to to feed the hungry when everyone we know is well fed. We can pine for the opportunity to feed or to clothe someone rather than being present with our own children instead of passing them by or hiding ourselves by ignoring the sounds of breaking glass and screaming next door or ignoring just pretending we don't notice when someone's speaking to us and their eyes are starting to well up with tears and we don't want to embarrass and so we don't say anything and we act like nothing's wrong. Jesus was called to the lost sheep of Israel, but he had to go through Samaria. He wanted to go to Samaria. And when he arrived there, he went to a well where he had this conversation with a sinner, with a Samaritan woman he knew was in adultery. And he asked for water from her. And then he offered her living water so that she could drink and be satisfied forever through the Holy Spirit. It's a wonderful thing when God uses people to minister in areas of need. We're called to go and do likewise, whether we're on the clock or not, whether it's a recognized ministry or not. And if we're going to go and do likewise, it means setting aside our plans to do the unexpected, I doubt seriously the Samaritan was prepared for what he saw along that road, seeing a man half dead. It means sharing provisions that we have for ourselves. He he didn't bring that oil and wine just in case. It wasn't like a first aid kit he had on hand. He planned to use that oil and wine for something, but he used it when he saw a need right in front of him. It, It means embracing the inconvenience of walking when you're entitled to ride. It was his animal, but he chose to walk, and he put that man on his animal. And it was costly for him to pay for the Samaritan's lodging 
and expected it would cost him even more upon his return. But the Samaritan, his thoughts were about others and not himself. He cared about that man being restored. He cared about the innkeeper being put out and says, hey, I'll compensate you. I'll make sure that you're taken care of. The Samaritan considered others more important than himself. And Jesus went beyond the law that was quoted by the lawyer. That was, love your neighbor as yourself. And he said in John 13, 34, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, and that you also love one another. Under law, Jesus used the example of the Samaritan to go and do likewise. But to his disciples, Jesus gave a new commandment. He says, love one another as I have loved you. And the only way we can love one another like that is when we humble ourselves before God and we repent for our lovelessness, we repent and we receive his love ourselves. Spurgeon said, let it be never forgotten that what the law demands of us, the gospel really produces in us. And this is glorious that God does that work in our hearts to change us, to put love where there used to be hate and bitterness and bigotry. Luke 10, starting in verse 38, Now it happened as they went that he entered a certain village, and a certain woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she approached him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Therefore tell her to help me. Jesus and his disciples, he traveled and went to a village this woman named Martha, she wisely invited him into her home. From other passages of Scripture, this was likely Bethany near Jerusalem. Luke tells us Martha had a sister named Mary, who also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. So they were both sitting at his feet. To sit at the feet of a teacher, uh, it meant that they were under their training and under their teaching. They were being taught by them. So they both sat at the feet of Jesus, yet at one point, Martha left the room to serve, perhaps to prepare food, provide hospitality for Jesus and those who were with him. And serving Martha was annoyed by sitting Mary. There's this important job to do. Martha feels like she's the only one who's working. Her sister's being a dead weight, not paying attention. And uh, we too can feel that way, right? We, we feel like there's a job that needs to be done. We're stuck into it, and we're looking around at other people to see if they have that same sense of urgency, and they don't have it, and we feel like we are being left out, like they are leaving us to do all the work for ourselves, and they're not doing their fair share, and they're not even having any negative consequences because of it. Now, most of us would probably stuff the, that anger and resentment into our hearts and take our aggression by vigorously scrubbing something or or uh, kneading some bread. And I can see Martha in the kitchen. She's working and she's trying to get Mary's attention, but Mary is just transfixed looking at Jesus. And she's muttering to herself, you know, I'm the one who's always doing the work around here. There's a lot to be done. Is, what is she thinking? Luke tells us that Martha was distracted with much serving. The King James puts distracted as cumbered about. It's like she's labored She's surrounded by cares and weights and worries. And the word for service or serving in the Greek, it's the same word that we derive the word deacon or attendant. 
So she's doing a good work, but her heart is in the wrong place. She's distracted from Christ because of this work she's doing. Jesus hadn't told Martha to do anything, but she felt there was a lot that needed doing. She was focused on what she wanted to accomplish, how Mary wasn't helping, and what Jesus should do about it. Can you identify with that, believer? It seems Martha believed Mary was distracted from what she should be doing because she approached Jesus and she said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Therefore, tell her to help me. Because Martha was burdened with cares and worries, she imagined Jesus didn't care that Martha was serving alone. But who was serving who? If Martha was indeed serving the Lord for the Lord's sake, how is it that she lacked the rest and the peace that comes from obedience to Him? Jesus was doing the serving. He was presenting the Word of God. He is the bread of life that we feed upon. We're told to feed on His faithfulness. Brothers and sisters, God always cares for us. He cares how you feel and what you're going through. He never leaves or forsakes us. But if he is our Lord, what right do we, or what place should we have to tell him what he ought to do concerning our lives or concerning others? He's the one who gives the orders. He is the judge. Martha accused Mary of leaving her to serve alone, but who was the one who left? It was Martha. Martha left the feet of Jesus to start serving. It was Martha who was distracted, when Jesus continued to speak, when we feel all alone in our service to the Lord, it could be that we have started doing something on our own that Jesus never told us to do. We put on our apron when we should have stayed at his feet. Now, if Jesus tells you to put on an apron and get to work, get to work. But as long as he's talking, let's not walk away from him. Luke 10, 41, Jesus answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, You are worried and troubled about many things, but one thing is needed, and Mary has chosen that good part, which will not be taken away from her. When I read this, it's so calming. There's something so gentle in this rebuke from Christ, who's gentle as he is gracious and compassionate. He says, Martha, Martha, you're troubled and worried about many things. And he doesn't say what those things were, but her conscience would affirm that Jesus was right. She was anxious. Her thoughts were full of worries. It was like she's in a crowded room, and all these thoughts are jostling her for attention. She's thinking about tidying the house, or chopping those vegetables, or butchering the meat for dinner, that it would reflect well upon her. But Jesus, he's speaking the words of life. The King of Kings is speaking. Jesus said, one thing is needed, and Mary has chosen that good part which will not be taken away from her. Mary's doing the necessary thing. She has chosen the good thing, to sit at the feet of Jesus, to hear his word. I've heard people say at the current state of the world, and frankly, we don't have to look beyond our own hearts to say, we need revival, right? Well, that may be, but it's not going to happen by us trying to serve Jesus when we've left him behind. When we've started, we see something that needs to be done, so we're doing it, but we've ceased to sit at his feet and listen to his word and have it impact us and change us. 
overwhelmed with troubles and worries that we blame other people for. Because Martha's blaming Mary for leaving her, and she's upset at Jesus for not caring and not telling Mary what she should do. But man, it was Martha who Jesus was teaching something in that moment, and he's teaching us too. Now, it's fitting that this story comes directly after the parable of the Good Samaritan, where Jesus tells the lawyer, go and do likewise. Without the teaching and example by Jesus or the lawyer, none of us would have known the full extent of what it means to be a compassionate neighbor to all. Between Mary and Martha, if you're going to say, who's like the Good Samaritan here? I would have said Martha. She's the one who invited Jesus in. She's the one who's caring for his needs. She's the one who's serving, right? She's got her apron on. She wants to make sure that her guests are well taken care of. But it was Mary who chose the necessary thing, the good part that would not be taken away. The words of Jesus, it shows that Martha acted on her own initiative when she left sitting at Jesus' feet to serve. If the interaction of Mary and Martha and Jesus stood alone, we might think that isolation or an ascetic lifestyle immersed in Bible reading, that alone is the good part to choose. But these two scenes, they provide such balance for us where we can easily be unbalanced in our lifestyle. The lawyer wanted to justify himself by law. He was exposed as unloving. Jesus justified Mary in choosing that necessary good part. Those who justify themselves or try to, Jesus will expose as frauds, but he will by faith justify all who trust in him, all who hear him and do what he says. Jesus told the self-righteous lawyer, go and do likewise. The only way that we can show the mercy and compassion and grace and love of God is to first fear him and to be born again. It's the one who sits at the feet of Jesus and receives his word, who knows God's will, and by the power of the Holy Spirit can do God's will. We're to be doers of the word and not hearers only. And we can't uh, fulfill Christ's command to love one another if we have no dealings with one another, right? If we're not coming in contact with other people, how can we fulfill those commands? Please turn to James 2, 21 through 26. We'll see this connection between faith in God and obedience to Him. James writes in James 2.21, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works, and by works faith was made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. Likewise, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. God told Abraham to sacrifice his only and beloved son Isaac as a burnt offering, and he obeyed because he believed that God was able to raise him from the dead. Now, God stopped him. It, it was a test. He says, now I know that you fear me, and he provided a ram as a substitute offering. Rahab, she was a Gentile who dwelt in Jericho, who sheltered and protected the two spies from uh, the Hebrews 
who came to spy out the land. And because she feared God, she sent them out another way. She sent the, uh, the Jericho, the people who lived there, um, on a wild goose chase to go try to find them while she preserved them because she trusted God. So the point here, no man can earn um, by their good works salvation or justify themselves. We can only be saved by receiving salvation by faith in Christ. But our actions will demonstrate whether our faith is genuine. Abraham believed God, and so he obeyed him. Rahab, she feared God, and so she protected his people. People recognized the clothing of a priest or a Levite. They would just say, oh, that's a holy man. Look at what he's wearing. Look at what he does for a living. Look at his role in society. But it was the one, the one who honored God along that road was a Samaritan who showed compassion on a man who was half dead, and he helped him. If you claim, if we claim to love God and to be a friend of God, then having invited him into our lives, we ought to sit at his feet to hear his word and go and do likewise according to his command and example. Praise the Lord that he has had compassion on us and let's show our appreciation of him and the fear of the Lord as we go and do likewise. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word and that you give us insight into the way we ought to live, that we ought to go and do likewise, showing compassion to all people, that we would not reserve kindness and help for those whom we know or those closest to us or we're on good terms with, but we'd even be praying for our enemies, those who oppose us or have even hurt us in the past. Lord, give us that forgiveness and that grace, even as you've given grace to us. And I pray, Lord, we'd also be as Mary, who chose that good part to sit at your feet and to hear your word. And Lord, there's much that needs to, much work that needs to be done in our own lives and in this world. It's work that only you can do. And I pray we would not neglect spending time with you, uh, rejoicing in your presence and, and not interrupting you or walking away. We praise you, Lord, for your faithfulness to us, that Jesus came to us when we were hurting, when we were dead in trespasses and sins, and you have blessed us richly and given us everything that pertains to life and godliness. Thank you, Lord, that the work you've begun, you will be faithful to complete, and that we can look to you in all situations of life for provision, wisdom, strength, and love. Thank you, Lord. We praise and honor you in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless. Have a great day.